To thank before we think. The Ten Commandments are the most famous religious and moral code in history. Until recently, they adorned American courtrooms. They still adorn most synagogue arcs. Rembrandt gave them their classic artistic expression in his portrait of Moses about to break the tablets on seeing the golden calf. John Rogers Herbert's massive painting of Moses bringing down the tablets of law dominates the main committee room of the House of Lords. The twin tablets with their ten commands are the enduring symbol of eternal law under the sovereignty of God. It's worth remembering, of course, that the Ten Commandments are not Ten Commandments. The Torah calls them Aseret HaDvarim, and tradition calls them Aseret HaDibrot, meaning the Ten Words, or utterances. And we can understand this better in the light of documentary discoveries in the 20th century, especially Hittite covenants or suzerainty treaties, dating back to 1400 to 1200 BCE, that is, around the time of Moses and the Exodus. These treaties often contained a twofold statement of the laws laid down in the treaty, first in general outline, then in specific detail. That is precisely the relationship between the Azereda Dibrod, the Ten Utterances, and the detailed commandments of Parashat Mishpatim. The former are the general outline, the basic principles of the law. Now, of course, usually they are portrayed graphically and substantively as two sets of five, the first dealing with relations between us and God, including honoring our parents since they, like God, brought us into being, and the second with relations between us and our fellow humans. However, it also makes sense to see them as three groups of three. The first three, one God, no other God, don't take God's name in vain, are all about God, the author and the authority of the laws. The second set, keep Shabbat, honor parents, don't murder, are about createdness. Shabbat reminds us of the birth of the universe. Our parents brought us into being. Murder is forbidden because we are all created in God's image. And the third three, don't commit adultery, don't steal, and don't bear false witness, are about the basic institutions of society, the sanctity of marriage, the integrity of private property, and the administration of justice. Lose any of these, and freedom begins to crumble. This structure serves to emphasize what a strange command the tenth is. Do not be envious of your neighbor's house. Do not be envious of your neighbor's wife, his slave, his maid, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. At least on the surface, this is different from all the other rules which involve speech or action. Envy, covetousness, desiring what someone else has, is an emotion. Not a thought, a word, or a deed. And surely we can't help our emotions. They used to be called the passions, precisely because we are passive in relation to them. So how can envy be forbidden at all? Surely it only makes sense to command or forbid matters that were within our control. In any case, why should the occasional spasm of envy matter if it doesn't lead to anything harmful to other people? Here it seems to me that Torah is conveying a series of fundamental truths we forget at our peril. First, as we've been reminded by cognitive behavioral therapy, what we believe affects the way we feel. Narcissists, for instance, are quick to take offense because they think other people are talking about or dissing, disrespecting them, whereas often other people aren't interested in us at all. 
narcissistic belief is false, but that doesn't stop narcissists feeling angry and resentful. Second, envy is one of the prime drivers of violence in society. It's what led Iago to mislead Othello with tragic consequences. Closer to home, it's what led Cain to murder Abel. It's what led Abraham and then Isaac to fear for their lives when famine forced them temporarily to leave home. They believed that married as they were to attractive women, the local ruler would kill them so that they can take their wives into their harem. Most poignantly, envy lay at the heart of their hatred of the brothers for Joseph. They resented his special treatment at the hands of their father, the richly embroidered cloak he wore, and the dreams he had of becoming the ruler of them all. That's what led them to contemplate killing him, and eventually it's what led them to sell him as a slave. René Girard, in his classic Violence and the Sacred, says that the most basic cause of violence is mimetic desire, that is, the desire to have what someone else has, which is ultimately the desire to be what someone else is. Envy can lead to breaking many of the other commands. It can move people to adultery, theft, false testimony, and even murder. Jews have special reason to fear envy. It surely played a part in the existence of anti-Semitism throughout the centuries. Non-Jews envied Jews their ability to prosper in adversity. That strange phenomenon we spoke about in Parshat Shemot, that the more they afflicted them, the more they grew and the more they spread. They also and especially envied them their sense of chosenness, despite the fact that actually virtually every other nation in history has seen itself as chosen. It is absolutely essential that we as Jews should conduct ourselves with an extra measure of humility and modesty. So the prohibition of envy isn't odd at all. It's the most basic force undermining the social harmony and order that are the aim of the Ten Commandments as a whole. Not only, though, do they forbid it, they also help us rise up. Of it. It is precisely the first three commands reminding us of God's presence in history and our lives, and the second three reminding us of our createdness that help us rise above envy. We are here because God wanted us to be. We have what God wanted us to have. Why then should we seek what others have? If what matters most in our lives is how we appear in the eyes of God, why should we want anything else merely because someone else has it? It's when we stop defining ourselves in relation to God and start defining ourselves in relation to other people that competition, strife, covetousness and envy enter our minds and they lead only to unhappiness. If your new car makes me envious, I may be motivated by a more expensive model that I never needed in the first place, which will give me satisfaction for a few days until I discover another neighbor who has an even more costly vehicle, and so it goes. Should I succeed in satisfying my own envy, I will do so only at the cost of provoking yours in a cycle of conspicuous consumption that has no natural end, hence the bumper sticker he who has the most toys when he dies wins. The operative word here is toys, because this is the ethic of the kindergarten, and it should have no place in an adult life. The antidote to envy is gratitude. Who is rich? Asked Ben Zerman, replied, Hasomer Bechelko. 
one who rejoices in what he has. There is a beautiful Jewish practice that done daily is life-transforming. The first words we say on waking up are I thank you, living and eternal King. We thank before we think. Judaism is, if you'll excuse the phrase, gratitude with attitude. Cured of letting other people's happiness diminish our own, we release a wave of positive energy, allowing us to celebrate what we have instead of thinking about what other people have, and to be what we are, instead of wanting to be what we are not.